It was, it was Sunday morning several years ago at church, and a visitor came up to me, and he explained to me that he had come to church that morning because he struggled with self-control. He had a self-control problem. And he was wondering if possibly God could help him with this problem that he had. He didn't share what his specific self-control problem was, and I didn't ask. Um, but his problem, whatever it was, it must have been fairly severe um, for him to be coming up to a stranger, uh, talking, you know, asking for help with this. You see, when someone realizes they have a self-control problem, the, the person they typically turn, turn to first is their self, you know, to, to, get, to get help and to correct that problem. He and I had an interesting conversation, and I think what made it interesting to me, at least, was the fact that his problem with self-control was the thing, the thing that was drawing him to God and into a relationship with God. Sometimes people come to God because they have a problem with guilt. Sometimes they, they, they feel like their life is empty and lacking purpose. Sometimes they feel isolated. They feel like they need a community of people to belong to. So, so people are drawn to God for all sorts of reasons. These are very common reasons. But for this fellow, he had come to God because he realized he could not control himself anymore. He was enslaved to something that controlled him. and He wanted to be free. It's, it's possible that some of you came here this morning because you would like to have a little control over your life, or, or at least over yourself, but you have a self-control problem, and it is enslaving you. This problem is embarrassing. You've had it for a long time. You look back on your life, and you, and you say, wow, it's been like five years, maybe ten years I've had this problem. Your spouse doesn't know that you struggle with this. Maybe they do, but you don't really talk about it. You know it's wrong, and you, and you want to stop, but, you, but you, you just can't. You are enslaved to yourself. The first thing I want to say today is that we do not condemn you. We do not condemn you. If you are struggling with a chronic problem, you probably know that it's bad. You know that. We're not here to condemn you or to make you feel bad about it. Our desire is to help you, help you climb out of those bad habits if that's what you're wanting to do. And so we have this sermon that includes my best advice for resisting temptation. Now, we're not really talking about... Uh, temptation until we talk about real stuff, guys. So I'm going to share a little bit from my own life, um, my own struggles with temptation in our sermon, sermon this morning. And mostly the reason I'm doing this is because I want you to understand that I know what it's like to be there and to be wrestling with this stuff. Some of you may feel like what I'm about to say is too vulnerable, but I'm telling you, we've got to be able to talk about things like this in our church communities or else we, we are just stuck, um, you know, leaving it in the dark. So, uh, so we're, we're not really talking about these things until we talk about them personally. And so I'm going to talk personally for a little bit here. There was a time in my life when I struggled with pornography. There was a year and a half period of time where I was addicted to pornography. Pornography. 
I was young and in college, and like you, I wanted to do the right thing, but I couldn't. This was back when the internet was becoming more prevalent for people personally, and I, I was at college, and, and I, I never thought about this until this week, but this was the, the first time that the internet was available to me in the private space of a dorm room. I knew what was right, and I wrestled and wrestled with a temptation that is so powerful, and I kept losing the battle. This particular temptation is very common. Surveys on pornography use in America give us some crazy numbers. Pornography is a $12 billion a year industry. It is, it is this huge thing that we don't talk about very much. And what I want to do today is I want to take a moment and look at the statistics on Christian men. According to a Barna study, and if you're familiar with Barna, you know that they do reputable Christian surveys. They're, they, they are a highly regarded research organization. According to Barna, 77% of Christian guys under the age of 30 look at pornography at least monthly. 77%. If you're over 30 and under 50, that number is 64%. That is Christian men at least monthly. For non-Christians, the number is a little bit higher, but not very much. Pornography is a powerful addiction. It is a powerful temptation. You want to do the right thing, but you can't. I pegged my my own last relapse into pornography um, to 2006. Since then, I've had moments where I've skirted the line, um, you know, close close to the line, and been strongly tempted to click that link. But I feel that I can confidently say that I've been clean for what is now 10 years. Of course, pornography hasn't been my only temptation, Um, and it's just one of the many temptations that you may be struggling with today. If you are struggling with something secret, something that is weighing you down, you know that the temptation sometimes can just be relentless. If If that's how you feel... The sermon for you, this, this sermon today is for you. If you struggle with temptations that aren't so secret and you just feel like you can't win over them, then this sermon is for you. Today, my goal is to teach you how to be a winner. I don't like to lose, which was demonstrated by my bouncy performance at the church picnic. Um, I don't know if you guys saw that. For those of you who did, you know what I'm talking about. I don't like to lose. I don't like to lose. And I'll tell you, I really don't like to lose to Satan. So I've got my toolbox here, and I'm going to show you the tools that God has taught me over the years to resist temptation and win. I don't always win. In fact, there are some areas of my life where I lose a lot. But I have continued to work hard on the areas where God is working on me, and in those areas, I really want to be a winner for God. And these are the tools that have helped me. So let's get into my toolbox and see what we have here. All right, the first tool you need is this. This is a Bible, but for us today, it's going to stand for knowledge. In order to successfully resist temptation, you need to learn about spiritual warfare. You need to get some important spiritual knowledge. Spiritual warfare falls into one of those categories of things about our faith that we really don't like to talk with, about with people in public. Um, 
Maybe you already knew what I'm about to say, but if you didn't, I'm, I'm going to break some bad news to you. Um, in, out in the world, when you're at work, at the baseball game, you're at the store, when you say, I believe that Satan is real, when you say, I believe that Satan is an active force in our world, you become less cool. You become less cool. You, you lose about three points on the coolness scale, maybe more depending on how you said it. I mean, this is real. I'm, I'm, I'm telling, uh, you remember, your friends think you're weird? It is important for us to talk about this dynamic because it influences what you believe and how you think about these things. Throughout the Bible, Satan has lots of mentions. In the book of Job, he's an active character in the story, and so he gets lots of mentions there. But do you know, outside of the book of Job, outside of the book of Job, who of all the people in the Bible is talking the most about Satan? Do you know who it is? Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus mentions Satan a lot. That's why the New Testament talks about Satan, and that's why we talk about Satan. Jesus talked about Satan and demons as if they were real spiritual beings. And so we believe they are real spiritual beings, whether it's cool or not. It was Jesus who taught us to pray, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It was Jesus who tells us that when someone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, it's the evil one who comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. You know, it's been said, the greatest trick Satan ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. I know it's not cool. Satan is not a subject that anybody likes to spend time dwelling on. But in order for you to successfully battle temptation, we are going to need to learn a little bit about spiritual warfare. You're going to be much less confused if you understand what is really going on when you are being tempted. Here's how it works. God made the world good. He made it good. But Satan desires to corrupt what God has made so that he can control it. Satan knows that corruption produces more corruption. He knows that sin spreads. A little bit of corruption can work its way through all of the areas of your life and cause bigger problems. Satan has all sorts of ways of getting corruption into your life. And when you are aware of these things... You can catch them at the beginning before they start to cause you know, all these other problems in your life. Second Corinthians says this. They're talking about a scenario in the church where someone needs to be forgiven. And Paul says this. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. You see, Satan has schemes, he has methods, he has tools for corrupting us. And here Paul explains that when we don't forgive, we run the risk of opening ourselves up to corruption in our lives. So temptation, here's how temptation works. I'm going to be borrowing these next four steps from The Purpose Driven Life. Um, The Purpose Driven Life has two excellent, excellent chapters on dealing with temptation. So I recommend those to you, and I'm borrowing these four steps right from there, so I want to let you know that. Step one, temptation always starts with desire. Temptation always starts with desire. If you're struggling with temptation, you need to ask yourself, what is the core desire in your heart? What desire is this temptation stemming from? Now, who created desire? Who, who, who had the idea for desire? Who, who created desire? 
God, God created desire. It was his idea. And God created your desires good. Every temptation you experience can be traced back to a desire that at its core is good. It's good. The problem is that Satan and this world and the fact that we're born into a broken world means that our desires have been corrupted. They become corrupted. Your desire for pleasure, your desire for accomplishment, your desire for justice, your desire for significance. These are good things put in your heart by God. But when these desires are corrupted, your desire for pleasure becomes pornography. Your desire for accomplishment becomes selfish ambition. Your desire for justice becomes revenge. Your desire for significance becomes pride. What God does is he he puts boundaries around our desires. He gives us guidance on how our desires are to be directed. And if your desire has no boundaries, it will inevitably lead to sin. Step two is doubt. Satan likes to throw a cloud on what is right and wrong. He likes to throw a cloud on it. It's a classic technique of his, and one of our later tools is going to talk about how to deal with this. There are times in life, now there are times in life, when right and wrong are truly hard to distinguish. But honestly, when it comes to temptation, those times are few and far between. The, the, The vast majority of our experiences with temptation are cut and dry. The cut and dry. If we're using the scriptures and like Christian wisdom to inform our decisions, these things are cut and dry. So step two is Satan throws a cloud of doubt. Step three is deception. Satan tells us that, uh, he tells us lies to get us to fall for the temptation, to persuade us. Satan tells us a lie that it, just a little bit is okay. The lie that everybody is doing it, and so it's Okay. He tells us there won't be any consequences. All lies. All lies. The last step is disobedience. Because ultimately, that is Satan's goal in temptation. If Satan can get you to disobey God, then he wins. If he can't, then he loses. It all rises and falls on obedience. You could have fought one heck of a battle. You may feel emotionally exhausted. You may feel worthless. You may hate yourself. Your head may be spinning. But if in the end, you get to the end of it and you're stuck with obeying God, then Satan has, ultimate, he has utterly lost that battle. He's totally lost. And those battle wounds, they'll heal a lot quicker than you realize. Remember, in temptation, everything rises and falls disobedience or obedience. So that is spiritual warfare 101. That's the most important stuff that I think you need to know about how spiritual warfare works. It's time to pull out a new tool. This is a good one. All right, our next tool is a really big, really sharp knife. Um, So it needs to be, uh, this one's actually not heavy enough. It needs to be really sharp and really heavy because we are going to use this to cut off our hands. Um, just, or just one hand. Let's start with one hand. Uh, that's, her, that's right. You heard me right. Cut off our hands, just like this. All right. So that's what we're going to use it for. Um, now, I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> this one is tough. This is a tough one to do. Not everyone is going to be able to do this. I mean, you could. You're, everyone is able to, but we struggle with this. Um, but if you can do this, you're going to make your, ba- your, your battle with temptation ten times easier. 
Um, but it's really tough. So where did I get this crazy idea? You ask, let me tell you, let me tell you. Matthew 18, let's see that verse. All right, if your, Jesus said, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. All right. Wow. Jesus knows how to get our attention, doesn't he? Oh, my goodness. All right. Now, although there are rumors that a few people in history have actually tried to cut off their hands as a way to avoid sin, no reasonable Christian is actually um, physically going to do this. Um, Jesus doesn't intend for us to. If we pay careful attention to what Jesus says in the verse, what he's saying is that he's talking about cutting off things that cause us to stumble. Here's how this tool works. Let's say you have an addiction to alcohol. Uh, maybe, maybe not an addiction, maybe just a temptation to drink too much. And you've been wrestling with this sin for a while, and so you've learned some things about yourself. You, you have two triggers that cause you to begin thinking about drinking. The first one is when you are hanging out with a certain group of friends who like to get drunk with you. And the second is when you are at home alone and no one else is in the house. Here's how you use this knife, all right? Those friends that cause you to begin thinking about drinking, chop. You cut them off. You say, uh, those are my best friends. I, I, I can't do that. Those are my best friends. I won't have any more friends. It's going to hurt. It's going to feel like you're losing a piece of yourself, just like cutting off your hand. But Jesus says, if you find that it's causing you to sin, cut it off. You, knew, you know that when you are at home alone after work, before your family members get home, that's when you struggle. Cut it off. Just like that. Go to a coffee shop. Go to the library um, and sit there until your family gets home. You say, every day? Yeah, it's going to hurt. Losing that relaxed wind-down time and, st- and instead having to spend it at the library, it's going to hurt. But Jesus says you should still cut it off. Now, of course, you, you, you recognize here that you could just drive from the library to the bar, right? You, you could find all sorts of workarounds. You could find a workaround for everything. And Jesus is not saying to cut off every possible avenue for sin. He's telling you to cut off your triggers, those things that, that lead you into sin, those things that cause you to struggle with temptation in a strong way. The principle of cutting things out of your life is powerful, and it is scary. It, what, what, if, what if you disconnected the internet from your house and your phone, and you had to use the library for the internet? What if you poured every ounce of alcohol in your house down the sink and went to treatment? What if you threw away all of your junk food and didn't buy any for two months? What if you cut up those credit cards? Jesus used the metaphor of our hands and our feet and our eyes. He was trying to tell us, yes, it's going to be painful. It will be a serious loss. And yes, we should still do it. Our next tool is also a knife. Um, it, is a, uh, it is a much smaller one. It is a scalpel. 
No, this is not a real scalpel. It's symbolic. Um, this, the, the scalpel, this scalpel is actually not for us to use. It's for us to give to God. That's how this works. Um, you see, to battle temptation successfully, you need to pursue conviction. You need to pursue conviction. You need to be ready and willing for God to point out and begin removing parts of your life that are not pleasing to Him. Now, it's counterintuitive to pursue conviction. Conviction is painful for the soul. To realize you've been doing something wrong your whole life, to realize that your life is out of alignment with God's desires and you've got to change, that hurts. That's uncomfortable. We don't want to do that. But God is a good and careful surgeon, and we need surgery. So what we do is we hand him the scalpel, and we say, God, remove those parts. Cut them out of me. I'm ready. It's going to be painful, but in the end, we'll be better off for it. Now, your current stance toward conviction right now might be, I'm okay with conviction. I'm okay if, if, if God convicts me, and I'll respond to that. But I don't go looking for conviction. I'm encouraging you to go looking for it. This is biblical. In Psalm 139, David invites God to convict him. He says, he says, he says in 139, he says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I have found that the disposition of pursuing conviction is important. Either I'm ready to give that scalpel to God or I'm going to hide it away in my toolbox because I don't want the pain that comes with spiritual growth. Proverbs 12 says this, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is foolish. The principle is to love and long for correction and conviction from God because you know that conviction is the beginning of that journey towards healthiness. You grab that scalpel and you say, God, I'd like you to cut out the bad parts. I want you to. Show me where my life is not pleasing to you. You have to long for it. You have to pursue it. At some point in your life, you're going to be tempted to do something wrong. You're going to find yourself in a cloud of moral ambiguity. You've got something in front of you that's wrong. But now, for whatever reason, it doesn't feel like it's so wrong. You start to doubt what you thought you knew before. It might just be a little bit wrong. It might not be sin at all. It's hard to say. Some people will call it cheating. Others would say you have a right to do this. Others would say, you know, it's just not the sort of thing that matters in the grand scheme of life. It's cloudy. I have a tool I use in situations like this to clear the cloud, and it is, it is, uh, it's called a gavel, and what it helps me to do is call a wrong a wrong. It's wrong. Just like that. It's wrong. Call a wrong a wrong. It's really just that simple. Remember, the vast majority of our real temptations are just so cut and dry. But it only gets cloudy once Satan throws this cloud of doubt over what you already know. The problem starts when we get into our reasons. We think things like, I know, I, I know it's probably not right, but I've got good reasons. Oftentimes you do have good reasons. Our reasons can be so good that no one would ever argue with our reasons. 
I had to sneak candy into the movie theater because the prices are so high that it would just ruin the whole experience. I mean, it's like $10 for this tiny little thing of candy. It would defeat the whole purpose of going to the movie theaters. I might as well not go. That's a good reason. I'm not arguing with that. I'm sorry for swearing, but you've got to understand how hard I hit my thumb with the hammer. I mean, look at my thumb. That's a compelling reason. He hit his arm. He hit his thumb really hard. I, I, you know, I, I know, I know. I should list my use tax uh, for online purchases to the IRS. I, sh- I know I should should let them know. But seriously, nobody does that. The people who work for the IRS probably don't even do that. They only care if the tax amounts to a meaningful sum of money. That's probably true. Those are good reasons. You know, these aren't really great examples. Usually, our reasons are really compelling and better than the ones I've given here. R- really, really good reasons. I'm saying that seriously. You know, your Christian friends may never challenge you on those reasons when you've got... They're fighting a losing battle. Your reasons are compelling. But that will never stand before God in heaven. Because you know what God will do? He'll go and bring somebody over who is in the exact same situation you were in, same circumstances, and who did the right thing just because it was the right thing to do. He'll do that. It does, it, right is right, and wrong is wrong. There are no excuses before God Almighty. So when you're in that moment, and the cloudiness is settling in, you're starting to be unsure if, if something is wrong, when all along to this point you've known that it's wrong, but you, you, you're, just, you're just getting cloudy, pull out your gavel and just do it. It's wrong. It's wrong. I'm not going to say it's okay. Wrong, 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 wrong. Just do it. Call a wrong a wrong. All right. Sometimes... When you are battling temptation, your heart is in the right place, and you understand spiritual warfare, and you're calling a wrong a wrong, and you're making some progress, but it just feels like you're making a lot of mistakes, and it just is so slow. I've got a tool for this. Um, this next tool is a 20-ounce can of elbow grease. Um, I, I picked this up at Kroger. Um, you can find it there. Elbow grease. There you go. It's actually fairly expensive. You wouldn't believe elbow grease. Um, so what, what this tool is going to help us do is going to help us be relentless with sin. Be relentless with sin. First Peter says this, So get rid of all, be, all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. All of it. If you want to win this battle against temptation, you cannot go into this battle all sloppy. <clears throat> you need to be hardened like a soldier. You've got to work hard. You cannot let anything get through your battle lines. You've got to go at it every day with everything you've got. That is how you win. And, and it's tough because one of Satan's techniques is he likes to throw distraction at you. So just, you, were, you were focused, but then he throws some distraction. Now you, all of a sudden you're, you're kind of wandering off the path. You forgot that you were fighting this battle. And, uh, and you, you lose your place. Anything can distract you from your cause. What you've got to do is you've got to use this and focus and the tools that we've been talking about here. You've got to stay at that task of battling temptation. And if you do that, you'll be surprised how much progress you can make really, actually very, very quickly. You can go from drinking every day to one month sober by using the tools we're talking about the, you know, today and this and this. 
So, so just like that, in a month, you can be in a very different place. Don't let anything, anything get through your battle line. All right, my next tool is more fun to use. Um, are you excited for my next tool? Okay, I can tell you it's fun. You can tell it's fun because it's got a, it's got a smiley face on it. Um, yeah, there we go. All right, so this is a stress ball, and it represents that when you are battling temptation, you need to replace bad habits with good ones. You know, it's a very common experience. You're battling temptation. You, once you stop doing something that was your old habit, you you find yourself having nothing to do and thinking about that bad habit. And you know, for example, let's say you're trying to use technology less. And you, just, you, you want to use it less. You, you've cut out certain portions of the day. You want, don't want to use it. Don't just sit on your couch, leaving yourself open for all sorts of technology temptation. Go do something. Fill the time. It can be doing anything, you know, anything you enjoy. Go to the park. Read a book. Get coffee with a friend. Work on a hobby. Bake something. Anything. It doesn't matter what it is. Just get busy and keep your mind busy, and you won't get stuck obsessing over that thing that you miss. So replace bad habits with good habits. All right, next tool. This is a good one. This is an important one. Um, this is a Celebrate Recovery brochure and a small group directory. Um, and they represent that when you are battling temptation, you have much better success over the long haul. And I would say, I mean this honestly, I would say your increases of success over the long haul increase 20-fold if you use this one. Share with others where you are growing. Share with others where you are growing. You can share at small group. You can share at celebrate recovery. You can share with a trusted family member. When you share about your temptations and where God is calling you to grow, you are much more likely to make progress. And this is how it works. This is how it works. I struggle with worry. This has been a long time struggle for me. Just, uh, this, is, this is an actual current struggle of mine. It's a personal struggle. I, I, th- I think about something that's troubling me or bothering me, and I, it's like I just go through life just thinking about some of these things all the time. I worry about all sorts of things. I don't like it, but this, this is where I'm at. It's part of my life. It's been part of my life since I was young. And God has really been putting the conviction on lately that I need to be working on this area and making progress. Well, this past year, I was part of Scott Kammeyer's small group, and uh, we're going through sharing prayer requests like, you know, we always do. Your, your small group probably does this too. And, and God had been putting the conviction on, and so I've got this tool here that says to share where you're growing with others, and so I decided to use it, and I told people about my struggle with worry and anxiety. I asked them to pray for me. Well, the next small group meeting... Um, Prayer request time came up again, and I, I asked them to pray for, for the struggle again. And then each small group, we'd be going around sharing the prayer requests every, every week. You know, mine was always the same. And I'll be honest with you, eventually it got embarrassing. <laughs> it got embarrassing. I'm always asking for prayer for the same thing. My prayer request doesn't reflect any progress. And so, you know what? I realized I need to do something about this prayer request and so I uh, applied my elbow grease, I got my gavel out, and uh, I went to work on this, this thing, worry. And I'll tell you, I'm not all done with this one, but I'm in a very different place than I was a year ago. So let me give you some encouragements here. Don't let temptation 
make you feel guilty. Don't let temptation make you feel guilty. Let's distinguish here. Temptation is not sin. They are two different things. Temptation is not sin. Everyone experiences temptation. And if you experience more temptations than someone else, it doesn't mean that you are less of a person or that you are less of a Christian. That is not what that means. In fact, if, if you're having lots of temptation, lots of temptation reflects that there is something at stake in your life, something big. You see, Satan, like the IRS, he doesn't waste his resources on small claims. He, he, I'm, I'm not saying that the IRS is Satan here. They're, they're just similar in this one way, okay? <laughs> so, so he doesn't waste his resources, he, he, if, if you're experiencing lots of temptation, it's because there is something big he's going after. And he knows if he can get to you, if he can get to you and, get, and enslave you and get, his, get a foothold in your life, then he's going to get a foothold in this person's life, in this person's life, in this person's life. This is especially applicable to you if you're a parent. Sometimes it feels like it's all about you. Sometimes it's not about you. Satan, it's about territory. Satan wants to get at your kids, and he knows he can get, get at them through you. Something, if you're experiencing a lot of temptation, something big is at stake. The Bible says there's always a way out of your temptations. Amen. Always. Always a way out. When you give your life to Christ and you let him rule over you, you may not have realized this at the time, but you get power. There is now power inside of you that is sufficient to conquer every sort of temptation you may come across. You can say, I've been sinning this way for 20 years. It's too late to change. All it takes is one simple prayer, and the entire armies of heaven are at your side to help you. One prayer. Martin Luther wrote an old hymn that has been a favorite for many. And, uh, you know, not very few people are singing this hymn because it's going get, to get an old-fashioned now. But I'm going to read part of this hymn to you because it describes um, the battle we're in. I think it describes it well. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ails prevailing. For still our ancient foe, that's Satan, does seek to work us well. His craft and power are great, and he's armed with cruel hate. On earth, he has no equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts his name from age to age the same. And he must win this battle. Why don't you stand?